this is a re-release. About two and a half years ago, we had a guest on our show who helped us to gain some prominence. And the reason for that was both his name as well as the topics that we were talking about. For instance, does which doesn't kill you make you weaker or stronger? Uh, what about the society that we live in? How fragile is it? What about the rising violence uh, on college campuses? This was on November 4th, 2019. And Charles, whom did we have then? It's one of my favorites, Eagle. Anti-fragility, gut feelings, and the myth of pure evil with Jonathan Haidt. Enjoy. And that's the number that social media has done on us, is it's put us all into these networks, this new economy of prestige, where as far as I can tell, many people are much more concerned about improving their prestige within their group than they are about actually helping their cause succeed. Welcome to the On Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Nico Grossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. Thank you so much. Please continue rating us. Uh, as of this week, we are the number 55, I think, uh, on the Apple Podcasts in, in the Social Science Division, which Woo-hoo. is really quite an un- unexpected surprise. Yeah, nice. Today, we have a special guest. We have uh, John Hyde with us, who is a Thomas Cooley Professor of Ethical Leadership at New York University uh, Stern School of Business. And John is studying morality. Emotions has been a... Uh, I've been a huge fan of John for a very long time. Uh, He's a cultural psychologist uh, uh, as myself. And um, most recently, he has focused on moral foundations and uh, the culture wars. And this is what we would like to talk about today. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Uh, We'll start with uh, some simple questions that I think Charles will uh, kick us off with a few. Yeah, I had it. So we're going to get into the technical stuff in a short while. But a slightly more um, broad question, firstly, John, was just... I've been following your work for, you know, uh, a number of years as well. And it seems I don't want to put words into your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems there's politically there's been a sort of a journey for you from more uh, left of center, sort of moving towards a more centrist position over the years. Firstly, does that would you agree with that statement? And secondly, do you have any thoughts, if that is the case, as to what might be behind that? Is that a general sort of process that generally people go through as they have more stake in society? Or is that something to do with what you found in your work no it's it's very it's, it that definitely has happened and it is very much um caused by the research that i've done the books that i've written in fact right. just recently i went back and I, I looked so i just pulled out um the happiness hypothesis mm. which is my, my uh-huh. first book and i wrote that in t- around 2004 2005 and uh, i was always on the left from the time i was a teenager um all the way through writing about chapter seven or eight of the righteous mind <laughs> at, which, at which point at which point I kind of stepped out and said, oh, my God, I've got to stop being a partisan and I'm, I'm, I'm now a centrist. <laughs> and we can talk about that later. But I went back recently and I looked at the, the conclusion of, of the happiness hypothesis where mm-hmm. throughout the book there were a couple – I tried to be fair, but there were a couple of places where I'm just obviously on the left and I showed real bias against conservatives. But yet in the end, in the conclusion, I talk about that very short concluding chapter. And if you're interested in wisdom, I think this is relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, the title is On Balance. And the opening quote uh, is, Mm -hmm. all things come into being by conflict of opposites. 
from Heraclitus. Huh. I'm going to talk about the yin-yang symbol and how you know yin-yang yin really is an right. idea for all of us. You can't just be yin all the time. You have to at least you know, be interacting with yang. And I talk about how we need a shifting balance. We need ancient wisdom and modern science. We need balance between the Eastern and Western approaches to life. And then here's something I wrote back when I was very much a partisan liberal who hated Republicans. <laughs> I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, and finally, liberals and conservatives are opponents in the most literal sense, each using the myth of pure evil to demonize the other side and unite their own. But the most important lesson I've learned in my 20 years of research on morality is that nearly all people are morally motivated. Now, this is back before I ever thought of writing The Righteous Mind, but this was actually right. this like beautiful, like if this was a movie, this would have been like the perfect foreshadowing to get readers interested in yeah. the sequel. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, so I was thinking of that right. even back then. So, so wow. are you saying you're sort of, um, you're kind of, essentially your current thinking is the product of that battle? Yes. If I had not, if, if I had not um, written The Happiness Hypothesis followed by The Righteous Mind, then I'm pretty sure I would still be on the left. I was studying political psychology. And so I guess another way of answering your question is to say the reason why I started writing The Righteous Mind was that in 2004, after John Kerry lost, that was the second election in a row that George W. Bush won. I thought he was a terrible candidate. Mm. I thought he should have lost both elections. And the Democrats blew it. The Democrats are extremely good at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> so I set out, I, you know, and this is, I'm a little ashamed to say this, but I set out to use my research in moral psychology to help the Democrats win. Mm. And I think a number of people do this in the social sciences where you – know, we'll talk yeah. about that later. But I think mm -hmm. we're human. Most of us are on one team in an increasingly intense culture war. And so a lot of professors you know, consult for candidates or the Democrats. I mean, mm. again, not most. I'm not saying most. But I wanted to help the Democrats win. So I started writing memos to use – how they could use moral psychology to win more elections. And I couldn't get anyone to read them because I didn't really know anybody back then. But – I committed myself to understanding conservatives because I'm a social, I'm a cultural psychologist. Because I, you know, I'm not an anthropologist, but I, I spent time in India. I studied with Richard Schwader at the University of Chicago. Um, so I committed myself to not just like writing about those stupid, ridiculous, nasty Republicans, but actually reading conservative writing and understanding them from the inside. And what I read blew my mind because I wasn't reading the worst things from the right, which you'd get if you go on right. Twitter. I was reading the best. And if you read Thomas Sowell, A Conflict of Visions, wow. Um, it's, it, it, he talks about the different models of human nature that left and right have and how much flows from those models. Um, I, I subscribe to National Review Magazine, which has great writing by really sincere, uh, like Burkean conservatives. You know, I learned a lot from them. And that changed me. That really changed me. And it really made me realize that if you want to understand anything complicated and everything in the social sciences is complicated, mm. you need to look at it from multiple perspectives. I suppose it gives you a, certain, um, a lot more credibility. Is that, you know, if you are clearly a partisan who's saying that we need to speak to each other in dialogue, you know, it sort of undermines your very sort of premise. So uh, it also must add to the credibility of your arguments. Well, if you're speaking to people on the right or in the centre, yes, it does. Right. Yeah, good point. We might come back to that. But um, I had one last quick question was um, just on a very casual, practical, uh, round the dinner table kind of perspective. How, how do you deal with, um, you know, the Thanksgiving conversations when you're, you're faced with people that have, you know, outrageous beliefs and you're, you're trying to sort of, you're just on a, you know, practical round the hype dinner table. How does that work? Uh -huh. Oh, well, I'm, I'm really good at that. Um, I mean, that's basically what I've been – no, it's like it's what I've been training for for years and years. And okay. I used to be uh, terrible at it. I'm, you know, I'm the sort of, the sort of guy – I mean you know, there's a kind of – not to stereotype, but there's a kind of a, like smart aleck, 
um, you know, smart aleck Jewish uh, <laughs> rationalist who tends to become a new atheist type of guy. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I was. And, and all of my early girlfriends said that I, I was just really annoying about arguing and always thought I was right. right. Um, but then in graduate school, mm-hmm. I read Dale Carnegie, um, his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And that really changed me uh, mm-hmm. because that showed me that you you know you never win an argument. You never really convince people by dominating them. Mm-hmm. They think they dominated you, or else they just hate you. Mm-hmm. And it really showed me you start by acknowledging what people are right about, and they're almost always right about something. Mm-hmm. So uh, that formed the basis of a chapter in the Happiness Hypothesis on reciprocity, and it ends with how to make a good apology. So so I think if you study moral psychology or social psych more generally, you get a set of social skills that. I really feel like it's a kind of a like almost a ninja skill or a, or a wizardry skill that no, cause it, but it's so easy. All you do is you just start by acknowledging something you think they're right about right. and it has this magical effect. And then people it, it changes the game. It's not a battle in which you don't expect anyone to grant anything. It becomes more of a. A conversation in which I'll mm-hmm. grant you some points and I, I hope you'll grant me some points and, and we enjoy the journey together. Yeah. I suppose it has to be um, authentic, though, if, if, you know, they smell a rat that you're just trying to find something to, you know, throw them a bone. Exactly. So a lot of that's right. That's absolutely right. So a lot of people want to know, what should I do at the Thanksgiving table? Because my goal is to convert my right wing right. Uncle Bob. Yeah. And so, OK, strategically, <laughs> right. I'll do what you say strategically as long as I get to ultimately be a partisan and win. No, yeah. no, that's not authentic. Yeah. I'm truly interested in what they think. And, you know, the further you are on either side, the more you would benefit from actually you know, listening to and trying to imaginatively put yourself in someone else's life. Yeah, I often think when I find myself chatting to someone who's from a mass, you know, from outside my, perhaps the group that I you know, find myself in socially, I kind of consider like, this is a rare opportunity. This is like an exotic yes. bird that I don't usually get to see. So I should capitalize and, and really dig in and find out what's going on. No, exactly. That's right. That's a beautiful way to put it. There was recently a report put out by this wonderful British group called More in Common. They, they mm-hmm. produced the Hidden Tribe study last year, and they just came out with the, the Perception Gap study. Mm-hmm. And what they found is they, they asked Democrats and Republicans, it was a big study done in the USA, they asked Democrats and Republicans to guess what people on, what people on each side believe, you know, what percentage of Republicans um, dislike immigrants. Mm-hmm. And then they asked everybody, do you dislike immigrants? I mean, it was more sophisticated than that. But the point is that you can quantify um, how accurate people are. And what they found is that partisans are generally not that accurate and, and centrists and people who don't follow politics are much more accurate. But here's the two really cool things. One is the more time you spend on social media, the less accurate you mm-hmm. are. And secondly, education didn't really make a difference for Republicans. So, uh, so less educated and more educated Republicans are about equally inaccurate. But on the Democratic side, the more degrees you have, the more education you have, the further you are from the truth. Because on the left, on the left, the more educated you are, the more unlikely it is that you ever talk with anyone who's not in your bubble. And so the, uh-huh. the, so the educated left, especially those who are on Twitter, in other words, almost all the intellectuals and journalists, I shouldn't say that because some, <laughs> some of the journalists you know, really do a good job. But the more you are a partisan on the left, the more desperately you need to talk to people if, if your goal is to actually, uh, actually be effective and knowledgeable. Which often it isn't, I suppose. A lot of the time. Well, well, that's right. And that's the number that social media has done on us is it's put us all into these networks 
this, this, this new economy of prestige, where as far as I can tell, many people are much more concerned about improving their prestige within their group than they are about actually helping their cause succeed. Mm-hmm. So let's transition here quickly, uh, because we already mentioned the social media. And uh, to some extent, that's a big part of what your new book is about, the book that you uh, just recently uh, came out, uh, wrote together with Greg Lukianov, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. So in this book, uh, let's talk a little bit about it. You talk about three great untruths. So can you, for our lay audience, uh, define what are those three great untruths and uh, how do they violate advice by major philosophical traditions? Sure. So the three great untruths briefly are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, always trust your feelings, and life is a battle between good people and evil people. Now, most listeners will instantly recognize the first as being the contrary of Nietzsche's dictum, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And that's the idea of anti-fragility. People are, in fact, anti-fragile, not fragile. We actually need challenges and setbacks. We need pain. We need stress. And if we protect kids from all of these things, we're not helping them. If you protect your kid from dirt and germs and bacteria and you don't let them play in the, in the dirt, you're not helping them. You're actually crippling the development of their immune system. And that's what we began doing to kids in the 1990s, especially uh, quite literally with their immune systems. We protected them from peanuts, and that's why peanut allergies mm-hmm. are going up. We protected them from teasing, from stress, and that's why I think – that's why we think – Uh, One of the reasons why depression, anxiety, fragility are going up. Play is way down. Overprotection is way up. So kids need a lot of challenges and stressors. They need short-term stressors, not chronic stress, but they need short-term stressors. Anyway, so the first one uh, is about anti-fragility. And and so we've really done a number on our kids in the the United States and Canada. Mm -hmm. New Zealand, I found, is much better. In New Zealand, they still actually let kids climb trees. They actually think it's okay if kids get hurt because they say, (laughs) well, they need to get hurt. They'll learn. Uh, We stopped doing that in the 90s in America and Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's the first one. The second one is always trust your feelings. Now, that one might strike some people as as maybe true, but it's actually the opposite of what the Stoics and the Buddhists found. So when I wrote the happiness hypothesis, I found two giant repositories of psychological wisdom. And the two really big ones are Buddhism and sort of a lot of the insights that come out of India, you know, Hinduism, then into Buddhism. And then also the Stoics uh, in, in Greece and Rome. There are right. many other wisdom traditions, but those two just, they, boy, I mean, like, you don't need to translate, like, you just, you know, well, you need to translate them into English, but they work beautifully. Yeah. Uh, and so, and in both of those traditions, they said, uh, oh, I should just find some quotes. In both of those traditions, they recognized that our immediate reactions, that we live in a world based on our perceptions, but you know what? Our perceptions are inaccurate. You have to question, you have to look for evidence. So the opening. Uh, Here, the opening of uh, chapter two of the happiness hypothesis is this quote from Marcus Aurelius. The whole universe is change and life itself is but what you deem it. And here's the same idea from Buddha. Uh, What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. And when you see that, you realize uh, that cognitive therapy is nothing more than Buddhist and and, uh, Stoic wisdom. Cognitive therapy tells us that people have these habitual thought patterns, catastrophizing, black and white thinking, jumping to conclusions, all sorts of things. And cognitive therapy is a technique for challenging those and and improving your thinking. And the discovery in the 1960s by Aaron Beck and others was that when people do that, their anxiety and depression lifts. And so it does play a big role in the book because Greg Lukianoff uh, is prone to depression and he had a suicidal Mm -hmm. depression in, 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 uh, in 2007. 
And so when he observed suddenly out of nowhere students in 2014 on college campuses asking for safe spaces, trigger warnings, talking about microaggressions, and basically feeling threatened by words and books and speakers that they didn't have to go see, he recognized these as a, a massive eruption of cognitive distortions. And that's really what led us to write the book. Fascinating. So what about the third one? So you said there are three, uh, right? And so you mentioned the uh, what doesn't kill you make you weaker and always trust your feeling. What about the third one? Yeah. So the third one is life is a battle between good people and evil people. And let me just point out that these three, these three great untruths that Greg and I found being taught on campus and in, in to kids all around are basically three chapters from the happiness hypothesis. You know, it's as though it's as though a, gener- a generation read the happiness hypothesis and said, you know what, let's do exactly <laughs> the opposite of ancient it, yeah. wisdom. And exactly, you, yeah. Let's, they didn't sell enough yeah. copies. I mean, they should, you could have <laughs> yeah. cut them off at the yeah. past. Yeah. So actually, just while, wait, while I'm on this, I just want to say, so the um, – uh, yeah, so the uses of adversity is this is chapter seven of the happiness hypothesis, and it opens with this great quote from Mencius or Mengzi: "When heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent." So you know these first two, mm-hmm. the, as I'm saying these. All of these wisdom principles, all of these great – well, the great uh, – yeah, all these ideas are universal truths. They're east – you find them east and west. All right. So now the third one is – well, I'll open it with a quote from – so again, we could just do the same thing. Here's Jesus. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye but you do not notice the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Buddha says the mm-hmm. same thing. It's easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. Mm. And it goes on and on from there. Uh, so the point is, I believe we evolved for tribalism and for reputation management. That is, we evolved to, to be hypocrites, always trying to cast our own behavior in a good light, mm. manage our reputations, deceive ourselves. That's what Jesus and Buddha were just saying. And then you combine that with our evolution for tribalism. So it's not just mm-hmm. me trying – I'm not just trying to manipulate the other people in my group. I'm trying to also keep my group together to fight other groups. And so the battle of us versus them is an eternal battle. Um, Some kinds of social arrangements and economic orders play that up. Some calm it down. And so if you have peace and prosperity, if you have a lot of international trade, you know, if you're Amsterdam in the 17th century or London in the 19th century or New York in the Mm -hmm. 20th century, you know, you you have this morality, which is like live and let live, you know, let your freak flag fly, you do you, you know, just honor your contracts. So there are there are many places where tribalism has been brought down to very low levels uh, and peace and prosperity and trade and creativity reign. But boy, is it easy to turn it up. Just say the pie is shrinking. Foreigners are crossing our borders and disrespecting them. We're under attack. It's very easy to, to, mm. to turn the tribalism switch on, and it's much harder to turn it off. So the argument that Greg and I make in the book is that on college campuses, at least at elite college campuses, where there's mm-hmm. always going to be identity politics. We're not saying, oh, identity politics is bad. Everyone should just be totally race blind. We don't say that. Mm-hmm. We say there's a good kind, which is common humanity, identity politics. This is what Martin Luther King did. This is what Nelson Mandela did. This is good social psychology. This is where you start by emphasizing what we have in common, our shared identities, our common identities. We're all human. We're all Americans. King used Christian language and American language beautifully to, to open people's hearts first. 
That's great. We're all in favor of that. But instead, what we see on many college campuses is a version that we call common enemy identity politics. And it's based on the intersectional idea that life is a series of power structures that intersect and interact. Um, people participate in various degrees of oppression and, uh, uh, and, and, and you know, either they're perpetrators or victims of oppression. Mm. And you take college students who are young – uh, who, whose minds evolved to do us versus them. And rather than turning that down, you turn it up and you say, the first thing you should notice about everybody is their race and gender uh, and other things that will cue you into where they are on a set of dimensions of oppression. This is a terrible idea. This is a horrible way to prepare people mm. to interact with diversity. But that's what we see happening in, especially in the last few years. Just uh, just jumping in there, is the intention why they're saying you've the first thing you should notice is someone's race, etc., is because um, left-leaning campuses, you know, you're going to be encouraged to find out why they therefore might be disadvantaged and come to their aid. You know, is, is that the motivation of why people... Well, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it's about coming to people's aid. I think that, think about um, Manichaeism. There's a, a, a common configuration in which you see life as a battle between good and evil. Mm. And it goes back to, you know, Manichae, uh, I don't know if he's Persian or Zora, some, somewhere in the area of Persia, that taught that there's an eternal battle of light and dark, and, and it runs through all of us, and we have to decide which side are we on. Mm. And that's very easy to, to do. And in, part of our culture war, as it's been heating up, is that left and right have become much more Manichaean. And so this is not necessarily a problem of the left, but because campuses almost always lean left, I mean, with about five or ten exceptions of schools you've heard of, the elite schools almost all lean left. The faculty lean very much to the left, uh, typically ratio, mm-hmm. depending, on, depending on the field, in the core humanities and social sciences field, it tends to be between 10 to 1 and 40 to 1. So the faculty lean left. Mm. The students tend to lean left but not be nearly as skewed. The administration, especially the student life people, lean left. So the, the overall zeitgeist is left-leaning. And so this is a big part of the story. As the culture were heated up, at the same time, uh, since the 90s, um, at the same time, the universities shifted from being mostly on the left to being much further on the left, much more politically purified. And so... Um, the, any sort of left-right issue, be it race, gender, immigration, inequality, minimum wage, anything, it becomes much harder to talk about because there's much more a sense of, wait, you disagree with on this? Well, you're on the bad side mm-hmm. rather than, oh, what's your argument? So things got a lot more Manichaean. And then when Trump was elected, so the, the coddling problem started before Trump. He did not cause them. Um, right. But when he came into office, that's when all the violence happened. There's been actually very little violence on American college campuses, but it was almost all in the few months after his inauguration. Passions were so high then. So that's where you get the riots at Berkeley. You get the violence at Middlebury. Um, you get the violence at Evergreen in, in, uh, in, in Washington State. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, we, we're prone to Manichaeism, and if you, if you heat things up, if you raise the anger level, uh, then people can't think straight. They can't make arguments. They just make attacks. So whenever I see this type of statement about life as a battle between good and evil or something along those lines, uh, it seems like with your take-home messages, it's complicated. It's not just yep. like you, even within the same person that some circumstances you could be good, but then the same person can do also something possibly very, very bad. And maybe the uncertainty that uh, Trump election has provided and sort of uh, the not only the outrage, but really just the uncertainty what to do about it has led to this kind of tendency to separate everything into clear cut lines. Very dangerous. Well, that's right. So we, we are in a polarization cycle. Trump did yeah. not cause it. It, it began, uh, you know, I think it began in the 90s with, uh, so it's a couple of things. 
Um, right. America had a lot of things going for it in the 20th century, including a very centralizing media system, three newspapers that were centrist. I'm sorry, three television networks that were that were sort of center left. Yeah. We had a really good 20th century that brought down polarization to historic low levels from the 40s through the 70s. Cable TV comes in and that allows narrow casting. Before then, we had broadcasting. We were all on the same page. We all had common mm-hmm, facts. Mm-hmm. Cable TV starts the process of narrowcasting. Fox News and, and other right-wing media uh, companies are really capitalize on that. And so while the left does, I wouldn't say control or dominate, but certainly it, it has much more influence. The mainstream media leans left. But the right-wing ecosystem became very effective in the 90s in creating um, a group of people that were on a very different page. And so that begins before the internet. And then the internet speeds things up. It allows for infinite confirmation bias. If you want to believe that you know, Obama is a Muslim, you can just look it up and you'll find evidence online. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that is – and that – okay. And then social media makes things even worse. So social media shreds whatever possibility there ever was of being on the same page is now gone perhaps forever. We will never again all be on the same page. I shouldn't say never again. A hundred years is a long time. But in my lifetime, I'm 55. I don't expect to live to see a time when Mm. we basically have a set of shared facts. I don't think that's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years. Mm. Um, So all of this is heating up. And I think it kind of begins to reach ahead around 2014 in in Obama's second term. It's not his fault, but things happen in his second term. Social media reaches really high penetration during his second term. Um, it becomes much nastier. Twitter used to be little micro-blogging about the hamburger I had for lunch, and now it's all about just mutual accusations. So Twitter becomes much nastier. Facebook introduces the like button and the news feed. It becomes much nastier. So a mm. lot of things come together. Uh, so that in 2014, we have this weird thing called the Great Awakening. People are talking about that now, that white people on the left got much more extreme didn't happen to black people. This is the year of the police shootings, those horrible videos we all saw. Mm. White people in the left become woke in 2014. And that is part of what happened on campus. We didn't know this when we wrote the with the um, even when we wrote the book two years last year. Um, it's only newer research showing that attitudes of white people on the left really changed in 2014 and 2015. So that was another round of the culture war. Of course, the right elects Trump and, and even conservatives who should know better, who are Burkean conservatives, even they go for an authoritarian um, authoritarian type of ideology. Um, so we're in a polarization cycle. Each side is driving the other to greater heights of apoplexy mm-hmm. and outrage, and uh, we're in big trouble. So, like, let's take a quick step back. We'll return to morality and political cycles in just a second. Uh, but one thing that uh, I would like to ask you, John, is, um, and this is something that uh, came from other people, it's like, I said, like, oh, I'll have John Hyde on my podcast. And like, well, what is his new book about? Well, The Coddling of the American Mind, fascinating stuff. And mm-hmm. they say, well, um, but is, how is Hyde able to write this? He's, is he a specialist in political psychology or human development or mental health? And so it's like, uh, so the question to you, John, how did you get around to write a book that is essentially about the mental health vulnerability of the current youth in the U.S.? Well, there is a chapter on that. So there is one mm-hmm. chapter. Um, chapter seven does uh, have some clinical psychology. It goes into the depression statistics. Um, so the first is that I'm a generalist. I'm a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I'm a social psychologist. Right. But I've always been a generalist. In my teaching, I taught Psych 101. My first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, was a survey of many fields. So I've always been an integrator and a generalist. 
I read very widely. You know, I do a lot of research for the books. I learn about a lot of fields. I love learning about multiple fields. I love integrating across fields. And mm-hmm. so as I've always done, integrating especially anthropology, sociology, political science. As for studying the statistics, being a clinical psychologist doesn't help you with that. I mean, I can read all the all the study. You know, I mean, the giant epidemiological studies. You know, I'm just as capable of of uh, analyzing those as any clinical psychologist is. So, mm-hmm. um, in fact, if if listeners go to thecoddling.com and then click on solutions, better mental health. I've been running two open source lit reviews, two Google Docs that are open to other experts to to edit and add to. Mm-hmm. And the first goes way beyond the book. It, it says, well, what's the evidence that there's this mental health crisis? And the really amazing mm-hmm. thing is that when we wrote the book, we knew it was happening in America, but we right. and we had hints about Canada and the UK. Well, now mm-hmm. we have a lot more data. The exact same thing's happening in the US, the UK, Canada. Um, Australia is a little less and New Zealand is a little less and it's delayed three years. But in all cases... Uh, what's happening is a huge rise of depression and anxiety only. Uh, young people are not saying that everything, they're not saying that they have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. It's only depression and anxiety. Um, and it's also behavioral. It's, so, it's self-harm, which leads to hospital admissions. Anyway, I'm sorry, I'm, getting, I'm going in too much detail here. My point is just that any, any basically competent social scientist who's comfortable with you know, reading academic papers can do that kind of research and come to a conclusion. And then I put it out there and I always invite critique. I always uh, mm-hmm. try to get a lot of people to criticize me. And on that lit review, there's been no criticism. Like everyone agrees like, okay, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. It, it all right. begins around 2012. It's hitting the girls much harder than the boys. There's like, there's no dispute about that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then the second one, the second lit review is, is social media the cause or at least is it a contributor? And there, there is some dispute. There are some contradictory findings. And so I would invite listeners to go to that site, read the docs. Um, as far as I can see, the correlational studies are very consistent. The time lag studies are not. Those are sort of po- both pointing each way. Uh, but the experiments are right. also very consistent. So I think the evidence is pretty strong that social media is a cause. And you don't have to be a clinical psychologist to read those studies. Yeah, so the question there is also, uh, you know, uh, just for listeners who are just interested in people who are journalists like you, John, sort of like the switch, you know, know, there are a lot of possibly uh, mental health researchers who may be interested in this, and yet they don't write books about it. There are a lot of social psychologists who try to stay within what they are comfortable with, within Mm -hmm. the realm of their expertise, but you're sort of reaching out, you're you're breaching uh, between the different aisles. And I'm just wondering, is it just like, uh, this is how you operate, uh, uh, because like mm-hmm. some yeah. people do, are not comfortable doing that. No, that's right. So first, there are surely individual differences, personality differences. And, you know, uh, there's the hedgehogs and the foxes, right. there are the splitters and the joiners. So I've always said about myself, I am a, I'm a reasonably good experimentalist uh, in a field of fantastic experimentalists. Social psychology <laughs> is, 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 is really great researchers, and I'm not one of them. I'm good, but I'm not great. But I've also thought that I'm a, I'm a very good scholar in a field that's not very scholarly. So social psychology has always rewarded um, – academic social psychology has always rewarded publication in empirical journals, whereas what I mm-hmm. love doing is the theory – the review papers, the theory papers. Mm-hmm. So my, my, most, my most cited paper – is a paper I published in Psychological Review, which is a theory journal uh, called the, the Emotional Dog and Its Rational Tale. And it was my theory of moral psychology that drew on many, many disciplines. So that's what I love doing. And, you know, we need both. I mean, it would be a shame if, right. if the academy said you have to be an expert 
on certain things. And then you can only write about the things that you're an expert on. And don't you dare read in other fields. Yeah. That would be terrible. And we have a long history. I mean, obviously, look, you go back to, I mean, Sigmund Freud, I mean, was, you know, he read very widely in more modern times. Uh, E.O. Wilson, Steven Pinker. I mean, these are brilliant writers. They're the most, ama- most amazing writers. And part of being a great mm-hmm. writer, I think, is that they they think about what's interesting to the reader and they can tell a story. So those are some of the people that I modeled. Uh, when I wrote The, the mm-hmm. Happiness Hypothesis, I, I read especially Pinker. Uh, uh, also, Dawkins is a great writer. Um, right. And, uh, and Wilson as integrators, yeah. So uh, let's stay on the topic of uh, mental health before we move on to morality and politics. Uh, one critique, potentially, I don't know if you encountered it much in the book, but I would like you to address it, is that, well, we're basically saying that under some circumstances, we need to be anti-fragile. We need to consider the possibility that adverse experiences uh, can not only not harm us, but in fact, they can benefit us. And yes. so the key thing here is uh, this notion of post-traumatic growth as some clinical psychologists Oh, yeah, uh, I love that field, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, it turns out that, uh, well, and I was just at a conference about it, uh, when you look at the empirical evidence backing up the post-traumatic growth, a lot of it is based on post-hoc rationalizations of challenging mm-hmm. events among survivors. And mm-hmm. there's very little work that prospectively examines people as they encounter challenging life experiences. So there is recent meta-analysis just came out in a psych bulletin this past year uh, that suggests that um, there's not much evidence about Mm -hmm. actual growth. And in fact, at the conference that I just attended in North Carolina, uh, most of the prospective studies, if anything, suggest that maybe under some circumstances for some groups of people, uh, but not in general. Mm -hmm. So what is your... Uh, what's your take on that? Is that inconsistent mm-hmm. in the claim in the book or how okay, can we yeah. reconcile those ideas? Sure. Well, first, the the basic idea of antifragility doesn't require trauma. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, sort of the common sense view would be what doesn't kill you makes you uh, makes you stronger, but up to limits. And at a certain point, you get PTSD. And right. so that's what I that's what I assumed when I started writing Chapter seven of the of the happiness hypothesis. But then I encountered the post-traumatic growth literature and concluded that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger um, up to certain limits. But even then, some tra- you know, traumatic experiences, many people have them. Uh, most people who really achieve greatness had some really painful setbacks along the way. We don't, so you can't just say, oh, well, but trauma is bad. Now, what you're pointing to is research. I, re- I haven't read that article, but I saw some coverage of it. I-, I would just point out that in positive psychology, we talk about how you can study people's experience in the moment and you can study people's retrospective beliefs and the stories that they mm-hmm. tell. Right. And neither one is the real thing. Both matter. And so it may be that on some objective measure, people haven't grown. But yet if the story they tell about themselves, if their understanding of their life is a story of a setback followed by extraordinary perseverance, aided by the love of certain friends and family and discovering my inner strengths. Well, that's a better story. And if that person is happier or if they at least have a, um, a better story about themselves that they tell internally, I would say they're better off. So on the question of whether trauma tends to lead to growth or stunting, that's an empirical question. And that kind of lit review is very important. I don't know the answer. But on the question of whether we're basically anti-fragile or fragile, I think the evidence is pretty clear. If you look even at animal studies, when you, you know, when you let animals do rough and tumble play, they become less anxious and more exploratory when you put them in new settings. You know, if you understand attachment theory, um, attachment theory is all about creating a secure base. But the point of the secure base is not to stay secure. It's to go off and explore and have experiences which you then learn from. So I think that uh, whatever the ultimate conclusion is about post-traumatic growth, 
the principle of anti-fragility that says that, that setbacks, difficulties, challenges, scraped knees, getting lost, uh, these things that are not trauma, they're just unpleasant, those things are, I think, essential uh, for kids. We're talking about kids here. Um, that's right. So I think, I think that's still it's quite solid. Yeah, so like the, the the question then is like, what do we need to even talk about growth uh, uh, in 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 the face of adversity, or are we okay with uh, just uh, resilience? And it's like you know, like no. it, it, the key thing is like resilience is enough. And then uh, if you then ex- go through this experience and happen to learn something along the way, then you'll get the additional benefit. But the first thing to realize is that you will not necessarily be damaged. Uh, that that that's not the first thing that should be coming to your mind. No, that's right. You know, I would go. I would go way beyond that. So, mm-hmm. you know, Nassim Taleb wrote the book Anti-Fragile, and in it, he talks about the word resilience, and he says, you know, because what he wants to know is what what's the name for systems that get stronger when you drop them when they when they experience shocks and setbacks, and. He says, no, I don't mean resilience because something that's resilient, it just, you know, if you drop a plastic cup on the floor, it doesn't break, it's resilient, but it doesn't get better, it doesn't get stronger. And I think we, we need to, especially anybody working with children, anybody who's a parent, anybody who's teaching in K through 12 or preschool, um, needs to understand that human nature is anti-fragile, meaning you know, the kids have to have unsupervised time in which they experience things that are unsettling, unpleasant, uh, scary uh, within limits, of course, we don't want to send them out playing in traffic. Um, <laughs> but but you have to you have to be willing to let them fall, not from a very high wall, but from a wall where they could mm-hmm. get a little bit hurt. They have to have the experience of deciding risk for themselves. And we could have had this argument in theory, you know, in the 1990s. But right. now that kids, now that teenagers are so fragile, the rates of anxiety and depression are so high, and people who were you know working with kids when I give talks on the book and people come up to me afterwards and they'll say like, I'm the guitar teacher in this, at this school, or I'm, you know, I'm a soccer coach. And it just in the last few years, if I criticize a kid, he won't come back to practice the next day. Mm -hmm. It's it's just too painful for him. So something we're doing to our kids is making them not resilient, but really fragile. Fascinating. Okay. So now we'll return back to morality. And I think Charles has a few questions about uh, the vicious cycles that we're experiencing, uh, the cultural change that we're going through right now. Well, yeah, I had two two questions and you'll have to judge how much detail you can go into uh, time-wise. Okay. But um, the first one was a super broad question, um, which was about uh, in uh, The Righteous Mind, you talk about the six different sort of moral flavors uh, and the left so it tends to focus on care and fairness and, the, and then the right also, as well as those, adds on you know loyalty authority sanctity liberty these kind of ideas so th- that's kind of suggesting that the left is more concerned about protecting a persecuted individual uh, and conservatives yes. are, are more protective of the group and then when i was yes. reading that i was like wow i always think of uh, left-leaning people as more concerned about the common good and people on the right as being sort of um, more individualistic in kind of a Gordon Gecko greed is good kind of idea. So um, sure. what am I missing here? Is there, is there different yeah. types of left and right? What, yeah. What's going on? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the, the biggest confusion uh, is that um, people who vote for the right-leaning candidate in the US and in many other countries are not a single type of person. Right. So I draw here a lot on the work of Karen Stenner, an Australian political scientist, who says in her book, The Authoritarian Dynamic, 2005, she said she distinguishes between Burkean conservatives, what she calls status quo conservatives. So those are the true conservatives. They have a conservative ideology. Uh, it's, you know, it's Edmund Burke. It's, 
it's you know change should be approached with caution we should we should operate on society as if we were operating on our father uh you know you might have mm-hmm. to do it but boy should you be careful don't just go knocking down marriage or the family or tradition so those are the true conservatives uh, then there is a group that are the authoritarians and that's what stenner is writing about and the authoritarians are the one of the four groups here that are that are truly racist and that um, especially when they feel threatened, when they feel not individually threatened, when they feel that uh, the country is coming apart, that we're losing our, our our shared morals, then they become racist, sexist, homophobic, etc. So the authoritarians are difficult to incorporate in democracy. Uh, and then there's a third group, which are really more libertarians. Um, she calls them laissez-faire conservatives, but they're not conservative at all. They're free market, classical liberals. They believe in freedom, free markets, oh, that's uh, limited government. Yeah. Exactly. So Gordon Gecko is not, you know, is not reading Edmund Burke. Um, he's, you know, he's reading maybe Milton Friedman, but not Edmund Burke. Right. So, so what we tend to do on each side is we tend to create a Frankenstein monster out of different parts right, right, from the other right. side. But there is no such person who has all those things. What's unique about our moment is that uh, while Ronald Reagan put together this really powerful Republican coalition that drew those three together, that is Reagan united the, the Burkean conservatives, like the evangelicals, mm-hmm. um, the authoritarians who are a lot of working class, like white ethnic working class Democrats, they've been Democrats, a lot of Catholics and, and just you know, a lot of other people who um, are not Burkean conservatives but might be prone more towards authoritarian sentiments. He brought them in and the business elite, the, the uh, libertarians. Mm. So those were all united and that was an electoral majority for a while for the Republicans. But the authoritarians were always uh, sort of in the backseat. They never had any real influence. What's unique about our moment is that for the first time in our history, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know enough about Andrew Jackson's time, but for the first time mm-hmm. in a very long time, the authoritarians are actually in the driver's seat, or at least they have a seat at the table. Right. And so that's giving us absolutely shocking, horrific events, the events at the border, the, the, the things we're doing to children at the border mm-hmm. are just horrific. And it must be, that must be sort of uh, embarrassing to the other constituents of the right i i can imagine you know it, it should be you'd think, with, you'd think yeah, yeah you'd right. think <laughs> you'd think and 20 years ago i think they would have revolted mm. but oh. the culture war is now so intense and the cross-party hatred is so intense mm. and the stakes are so high the supreme court is so important that the evangel many of the evangelicals many christians many Burkean conservatives have been holding their nose and the common thing I hear them say is, well, yeah, you know, if you listen to what he says, it's pretty horrible. But if you pay attention to what he does, you know, he's doing some good things for the you know, for conservatives. So mm-hmm. I'm very disappointed in them. I, I, I love reading center-right and center-left. I love reading, I guess, centrist, you know, centrist intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, the re- and the intellectuals largely are horrified by Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of the prominent uh, conservatives are supporting him. Um, and so I, I think uh, I, I think that they will look back on this, or history will look back on mm. on them with some rather negative judgment. Mm. My next question was about diversity. So again, maybe it's uh, a bit like the there's different types of left and right. There's different types of diversity because you you speak. So the heterodox academy idea, which we'll put a link on on the site so people can sort of find out more about that, sort of really prioritizes. Says on campus there is not enough viewpoint diversity. There needs to be more. Right. Um, but uh, I was looking through the happiness hypothesis getting ready for this and you talk about moral diversity and that people mm-hmm. don't like moral diversity and it can tear a community apart if people have massively yeah. massively different morals so how do you bring these two things together because it sounds like you're saying yeah you, on campus you you kind of need 
low moral diversity. So there's some cohesion in the community, but you, you're encouraging saying we need more viewpoint diversity if you're going to get towards the truth. So how do you square that? So first, so first, we have to be really, really honest about diversity. That is, we it's such an important like diversity, hierarchy, you know, connectivity. There are certain parameters of a society that are really fundamental parameters, almost like basic parameters of physics. Mm. You know, like the gravitational constant, things yeah. like that. And so, diversity has complicated effects. And from a social psych point of view, you know, in general, it should be divisive. In general, mm-hmm. if people have the same birthday, they'll like each other more. If they have the same hair color or name, they'll like each other more, trust each other more. And uh, Robert Putnam has written a lot about this. The, the effects of diversity tends to decrease social capital, both bridging and bonding capital. Right. Of course, diversity also increases creativity. The economists are clear that immigration is good for the economy. Mm. So diversity has a lot of effects on a society, Mm. some good, some bad. So I think we need to be very honest about that. Now, what's happening, I think, is since the Great Awakening, um, Mm -hmm. because many people on the left see America as a battle between the racists and the good people and diversity is what the good people want and the more diversity, the better and et cetera, et cetera. And diversity is our strength and diversity only does good things. You know, I think that's that's not helpful. That that's turning it into a religion, and then we don't get good good policies. So, mm-hmm. if the goal of the group is cohesion, if you are the U.S. Marines and your goal is cohesion, you're going to want to do everything you can to make the people in a unit feel similar. Now, you know, it might be the case that had you had everybody be the same race, that would actually be better. I don't know, but. Fortunately, you don't have to – like race is just one thing. And what the Marines and what the U.S. military has found out is that they can totally overcome race. They are one of the best institutions in society for saying rather than playing up race, let's play it down. Let's have such a strong sense that we're all in this together, that you're a Marine. We'll get tattoos. We'll wear the same thing. So you don't. Have, so race is not this deep thing in us uh, that has to be expressed. It's just one dimension on which we can have diversity. And if you play it up and make it matter, then people will care about it. But if you play it down and drown it in other forms of similarity, then they don't care about it. So if the goal is cohesion, then you want similarity. Um, but if you are the Defense Intelligence Agency, let's say, mm-hmm. if you are any, any organization tasked with finding the truth, if you are a jury, if you are a scientific community, you do not want – uniformity. You do not want everyone to think the same way. Mm. You darn well better have viewpoint diversity. And here, the research on diversity is actually quite interesting. There's not actually a lot of research showing that race and gender diversity improves group dynamics. There is some, but there's also a lot that finds no effect. Um, the, when, when they look at that, the kind of diversity that most likely leads to better performance is viewpoint diversity. When you bring people in who, you know, one guy's from engineering, you got a woman from marketing. When you bring people in who look at a problem from different perspectives, they produce better answers. And so, you know, my view as a social scientist in a community that was left-leaning and now is almost uniformly left in many of the social sciences, except for economics, my view is that, sure, you know, let's talk about diversity, but the kind that we most need is people who look at things differently. And especially on politically charged topics, if everyone's on the left and people are afraid to challenge, and this is what you find, mm. people are afraid to speak up even when, they're, when they have doubts, um, you're going to get bad research. And that's why we started Heterox Academy. So I wrote a paper mm-hmm. with five other social psychologists um, just talking about how this is a danger to the quality of our science. It was not a political paper. It was not a moral paper. It was a straight you know, methods and theory of science kind of paper about the benefits of viewpoint diversity for social science research. And then after we published it, 
in behavioral and brain sciences, uh, we found that similar papers were written in law by, by uh, right. Nicholas Rosencrantz and in sociology by Chris Martin. And so the three of us got together and thought, wow, this is a problem mm-hmm. across the academy. Anyway, long story short, um, we created an organization called Heterodox Academy. And at first, we just invited people who were researching the topic. There were about 15 of us for the first year. Um, but then as the problems on campus got more severe um, in 2016, 2017, we opened up membership to anyone, any professor or any academic insider, including grad students and now administrators, who was willing to say, you know what, we need viewpoint diversity. And we are completely nonpartisan. We're at balance between left and right. Uh, with larger groups of centrists and, and libertarians, I'd say. But yeah, we're, we are trying to tone things down. There's all these right-wing groups that are attacking universities from the outside. We want nothing to do with them. Uh, we love the academy. We love research. Mm. And we think that, you know, to paraphrase Bill Clinton, there's nothing wrong with the academy that can't be fixed by what's right with the academy. That's what we're trying to do. Do, do research, to have good policies, improve the, the speech climate, and, and, and try to solve the most important problems of the 21st century. It's a very admirable goal. Seems like, uh, in general, uh, the conclusion from uh, this distinction between moral and viewpoint diversity is it depends on the context and the type of goal you try to achieve. If it's about reasoning and making an educated decision, as it is often in academia, then high viewpoint diversity would be highly uh, advantageous. And if it is about making some kind of a common um, uh, a common action, like in the army, where it's really about, about action, then maybe lower diversity could be under some circumstances yep. beneficial. Exactly. I, have a, yep. I have a question here about uh, culture. Uh, I have to put on my cultural psychologist hat, otherwise some colleagues uh, in academia probably will not forgive me. Uh, so we already talked about uh, this. Um, we talked about how the trends uh, that uh, you uh, depict in the coupling of the American mind may be documented in other countries. And I went to your very helpful uh, website um, and we'll post the link again for the international coddling. And what I see is that most of the countries that you list where it seems to be that similar trends are English-speaking countries or countries of sort of like Germanic or Scandinavian countries of of a similar uh, flavor. What about uh, Latin America or Mm -hmm. Africa? Um, What about South Asia? Do you think similar trends can be observed there? And if not, Mm -hmm. uh, why not? Yeah. So first, the first answer is the reason why I have only English speaking countries is because I speak English. Uh, and so I'm able to. It's a very reasonable answer. Yeah. Yes. No, because the key thing, because the key marker, I think, mm-hmm. is the mental health stats. That's what I was really focused on. Right. So I began, I created Google Docs for each country and I hired a research assistant. I went through a lot of it myself. So, uh, you know, I first did just in, in the book. We covered the U.S. and U.K. a lot in Canada. And this summer I was in Australia, New Zealand, so I I did some research on those countries. As far as I can tell, the Germanic and Scandinavian countries are not overprotecting their kids. So um, in Germany and Switzerland and Austria, they let kids play in the forest. They have what are called forest schools. So even at the age of six or seven, there are schools where the kids go outside every day or maybe it's entirely outside. And even in the winter, even if it's raining, the kids go outside. What? Crazy. Uh, And so, you know, and and the kids walk to school at the age of six or seven. They can walk to school. So as far as I can tell, the English-speaking countries are going insane with overprotection, like completely insane. I'm sorry, I shouldn't exaggerate. But in the U.S. and Canada – in particular, uh, we're the wimpiest of all the countries. In the U.S. and Canada, most of us who used to walk to school or ride our bicycles at the age of seven or eight, you know, we think it would be terrible, it would be irresponsible uh, if, if uh, somebody in our community let their kid walk to school at the age of seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's happening in France, Germany, Scandinavia. So that much, that much I have a little confidence in, although I don't have data on that yet. 
right. every research like, assistant. I think, like, who's- the Netherlands is also uh, along those lines. I mean, I've very recently heard like uh, people bike to school when they are in the middle school. It's in fact that like you would be ostracized if you don't bike to school. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's raining or shining. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't matter yep. if you live like one mile away or even up to 10 miles away, you would still be right. biking. Yeah, that's right. So I, I expect – so what I think is going on is social media has taken over teen life everywhere. And, and this, you know, I'm sure it's true in Africa and India, although perhaps not as much depending on, on cell phone saturation and all that. But cell phone saturation is pretty high even in poor countries. So, right. so everyone's got the social media issue. But our claim in the book – and this is just a guess – our claim in the book is that the social media – the too early exposure to social media – and the overprotection, which, which turns anti-fragile kids fragile, that combination has led to terrible results for American and Canadian kids. And in much of the world, they only have the social media problems. They don't have the overprotection, which makes, fra- makes kids more fragile. So uh, in terms of what's happening next, I'll have to look at Asia. Uh, but there, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think Korea and Japan are likely to have good statistics, but China may not. Um, right. And, uh, you know, in African countries, I doubt they'll have really good, you know, epidemiological surveys of, of the whole country. So it depends on where the statistics are. Um, I was just in Argentina and mm-hmm. they're seeing hints of it there, but not so much. I mean, they have, you know, they are having rising anxiety and depression, but they're not having like the political explosions, the campus events. Oh, here's another big thing. What I'm learning is in the United States, we have the Oxford-Cambridge model. We modeled our universities after Oxford and Cambridge. We have the idea that for four years, you live on campus in a community of other 18 to 21-year-olds. And in such a closed community, very arcane ideas can flourish. Speech is violence. uh, People are fragile. Everything's an interlocking matrix of oppression. Mm. There are all these ideas that flourish, microaggressions, safe spaces. They can flourish there. But in other countries, and like in Australia and New Zealand, you go to a university in town. Almost everybody lives at home. And so Mm -hmm. they don't have these ideas. The only kids who live on campus are Chinese, uh, you know, other foreigners who are, you know, are paying full fare and supporting the university. And they're not there to engage in politics. They're there to learn. So you don't generally have the campus explosions in the non-English speaking world. Um, It's really a, 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 you know, a Commonwealth British inspired thing to have a residential college. And that that has amplified things. Well, you're welcome. There you go. (laughs) That's my gift to the world. Um, (laughs) um, Well, you know, okay, look, Britain gave us a lot of good stuff and uh, and And some some bad bad stuff. Right, yeah. Um, Can I squeak in a very quick final question? Um, And you can go brief, which is just, I guess I want to know uh, how the book is coming, going down on campuses. And also, as you've been making this journey from sort of uh, left, where you'd be more aligned with your your uh, psychology colleagues, mm-hmm. to centre ground. Um, what does that feel like? Uh, so I'll take the second one first, which is within my field. I was a little nervous, um, and I for a couple of years I didn't say that I was a centrist. I kind of acted like I was still on the left. Sure. Um, but my field, social psychology, is not. I mean, it's very left leaning, but it's not um, crazy political. It's not. How should I say? Like people are, they're scientists first. And so because I've always just made my arguments carefully and with data, I've been received very well. Uh, there are a couple of people who dislike me, but the general response, I would say my, my respect and prestige in the field has actually gone up because of what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm really proud of my colleagues for that. That is, they've, they've, you know, they've reacted well, and it's not clear like what we should change, they'll say, but they agree that many of them agree that there's a problem. Right. So I've, had, mm-hmm. I've faced no problems in social psychology at all. Okay. Um, and then what's the other question? How the book has gone down? So I've spoken at the book on a lot of campuses. And what I find is 
Um, there, there's always a rumor, not always, there, a few times there's a rumor that I'll be protested, but it never happens. <laughs> uh, one thing that I'm finding is that because the new, because of the Great Awakening, um, there are purity laws. Uh, people who, uh-huh. most, most students are not, not woke like that, but those who are woke will not read my book. It's, it would be, it would be uh, blasphemy, not blasphemy, it would be polluting. So they will not read my books. They don't know what it says. And therefore, they have not made any arguments against it. Huh. So that's been the surprise to me is that there's been very little argument against it. There's been a lot of claims that Greg and I are bad people, but there's been hardly any claim that we're wrong. Uh, mm. And so when I speak on campuses, what I find is almost all of the deans, anybody who is in a position of authority is incredibly welcoming to us because their lives are really right. difficult. Mm, the yeah. students are explosive. Yeah. The students are expecting immediate results based on what they ask for. So I, I think most professors – in 2015, it wasn't like this. But by now, in 2019, most professors, most administrators have seen this new kind of morality. They've seen the fragility. They've seen the, the call-out culture. And they hate it. And so uh, they've generally reacted well. And I always poll the students. I always say, I give my talk, and then I say, okay, Gen Z students, if you're born after 1996, please weigh in. Do you think that I largely got this right or wrong? Mm-hmm. And I've said some bad things about your generation. <laughs> said you're depressed and fragile. Yeah. You know, do you think this is right or wrong? And it's usually pretty close to 100% say, yes, this is right. right. Meaning they're not in denial. Like they know yeah. that they have hugely high rates of mental illness, of depression, anxiety. Uh, they know that social media is messing them up, and very few of them are woke. Very few of them are going to like shout down people or or shame people. Mm. Um, and in fact, most of them really dislike the few people who do that. They all hate mm-hmm. call out culture. So the reaction has been actually very good. Well, thank you so much, John, for being on our show today. Uh, we really learned a lot. We really appreciate your time uh, and uh, all your insights about the current state of affairs in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Well, thank you, Igor. Thank you, Charles. I had a great time talking with you. Thanks. And now for a quick summary of today's episode. First, we spoke about the three great untruths. Number one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Humans actually might be best described as anti-fragile, benefiting from some stress and challenge. Number two, always follow your emotions. While in fact, we're all prone to misperceiving the world, so we should check our views carefully. And number three, life is a battle between good people and bad people. In fact, rather than play up what separates us, the focus may be better placed on what we have in common. We then spoke about how we've arrived at our current point of extreme polarisation. We have, as a society, been on a journey from the broadcasting of shared media and facts in the 1940s through the narrow casting of the cable television era to now when we have personal media feeds and may never have common facts again. We also spoke about three quite distinct types of conservatives. You have the status quos, the authoritarians and the laissez-faire's. While this coalition's been in place since Reagan's successes in the 1980s, what's new now is the authoritarians are in the driving seat. Finally, we spoke about diversity, which is neither good nor bad, but rather depends on what you're trying to do. If your priority is cohesion in the military, for example, you want low diversity, so we'll play up similarities. Alternatively, if your priority is truth-seeking, for example, in scientific research, you'll want high-viewpoint diversity so that multiple perspectives can be brought to bear on a problem. That's it for this episode. Until next time on the On Wisdom Podcast. Mm-hmm.